huge, massive, enormous content and spoiler warning. I'm going to be talking about Game of Thrones, which contains adult themes, and there will be spoilers about the show and the books. You have been warned. actually quickly mention why I wasn't able to record and put any shows out for the last couple of weeks. My partner and I, who is also part of this network, were having an incredibly awful experience where we were living. We were just treated really poorly. Um, I talk about inequality a lot on this show, so I think it's kind of fitting to sort of mention what happened. We really got taken advantage of as tenants by people who are wealthy who actually, I'm not even joking, got their money from committing crimes. We ended up having to call 911 because the guy upstairs flipped out when he found out we were leaving and it's a whole thing. So anyway, it's been quite an intense couple of weeks. Um, I'm sorry I haven't been able to record. I've really wanted to. I've actually had this episode written for those whole two weeks. Just hadn't had the time to actually sit down and do this because, yeah, moving is stressful, as I'm sure many of you know. But we're here now and we're safe, so I'm excited to be back. So today, I'm going to be exploring another area of Game of Thrones. This area will be food and agriculture, looking closely at what the people of Westeros will eat during the winter and the long night. I'm going to talk about seasons and their impacts, different regions of the world, and make some predictions about what might happen during the upcoming war against the Night King, White Walkers, and their army of whites. It is not controversial to say that with war comes poverty, as land is destroyed and armies grow and must be fed. So I'm interested to take a look at what might happen here, particularly because winter has arrived in the north, and what the kingdoms could do to ensure a sustainable food supply, if anything. So let's begin with seasons. Seasons are, without a doubt, of critical importance to the world in Game of Thrones. Their length is unpredictable, as is their severity. When we're talking about winter or summer, this doesn't just mean that the weather gets cold or warm, but that the planet itself changes its orbital dynamics in ways that don't even closely resemble what happens on Earth. The show doesn't really go into this either, and George R. R. Martin in interviews has answered questions about the changing seasons as a result of magic. While maesters at the Citadel know when a year has passed, as this is simply the time it takes for the planet to orbit fully around the sun, No one really knows how to predict changes to the season, or at least have never revealed to be able to do this. Ned Stark seemed to have a pretty good feeling that winter was coming, but we don't really know how. Again, according to the author, this is most likely because of magic. We know that the Night King and Bran Stark are deeply connected, and many fans have speculated that Bran could even be the Night King himself, or that at the minimum he is a Stark. So maybe Ned felt some sort of connection too. But we are here to talk about food, something a bit easier to grasp from an economic perspective. As we all know, and it doesn't seem to be different in this world, food grows best in warmer weather, with lots of sun, plenty of water, and where soil is fertile. For the entirety of the show at least, Westeros has enjoyed a long summer. Food has been abundant, and given that the Seven Kingdoms have medieval levels of technology, 
most economic activities are agrarian or mineral-based. We also know that this summer, the one that has just ended, was particularly long, as many farmers throughout the region expressed delight that they were able to get themselves more harvest from their crops than during other summer seasons. The only time we ever really hear about there not being enough food to feed the people during the summer is when some of the houses in the Seven Kingdoms are in open rebellion against the crown, so there is war. During any war, food supplies are always short as armies need to be fed and farmland can be wiped out during battle and also just as workers are called to the battlefield themselves. So the food shortage that happened was not to do with changing seasons but other forces. So winter has arrived and will set in across the land in no time and there is also a looming great war just on the horizon. What are people going to eat to survive when these two major influences are in play? Let's first look at some of the regions, what food they grow and export, if any, and how wealthy they might be to understand how they operated during summer. In the north, the main exports are lumber and timber, so no food exports there. They're not making enough food on a scale that is large enough to sell it to other regions. They have an abundance of fishing and hunting resources available, but most of it stays within the north for the survival of its own small population. The small population also makes it harder for the region to exploit its resources. It doesn't have enough manpower. One thing that is unique in the north is that it grows food in glass gardens, which are much like real-life hothouses, greenhouses, whatever you want to call them, even during the summer months. These are kept warm by natural hot springs in Winterfell, and this technology will likely become more and more important as the winter sets in. As we move south, the Iron Islands similarly don't export any food and only really have fish available. What will happen to fish stocks in the cold is unknown. The region is also densely populated, which strains local food supplies already. Heading east now back to shore, we can make our way to the Riverlands and then the Vale of Arran. The Riverlands primarily export cattle and also enjoy good resources of fish and grain, Something that also makes this region significant, not only for its ability to produce food, is that it has ports on the east and west sides of the continent, meaning it, it can take advantage of many trade opportunities easily. But this is also a major weakness, as it is right in the heart of the continent and is an easy target. Any army could easily invade and take any resources available. In the Vale, primary exports are grain and marble, and the region also grows many crops including wheat, corn, barley, fruit and pumpkins. I would assume that the mountain ranges are perhaps vol volcanic or used to be and so the soil is rich and fertile which allows them to grow a lot of food at a high altitude and it also helps them to protect themselves so they could become very significant in the years to come. Moving slightly more south now to the Westerlands, home of Lannisport and Castle Rock. Now, this is the richest region of Westeros, as everyone knows from a monetary standpoint. They have a lot of gold and silver, which is mined, minted and sold. When it comes to food activities, the people can fish along the coast and there is some crop growing. The Westerlands also build ships, and Lannisport is itself a large port city, making trade easy and desirable. Now, the remaining regions in Westeros are, of course, the Crown Lands, the Reach and Dawn. The Crownlands, home to King's Landing, Dragonstone and many ports, primarily grow and export grain. The region is also rich in fishing and farming and proficient in shipbuilding and metalsmithing, another skill which be will become valuable during war times. We also know from past episodes that there is a blacksmith in King's Landing who knows how to reforge Valerian steel, 
a skill held by only a few in all of the world. So we're not only looking at a significant pool of food resources, but also skills and knowledge that have the capacity to generate income and trade opportunities. The Reach Now, a significantly large area between the Westerlands, Crownlands and Dawn, is also very abundant in its food supply. Home of High Garden, this region is known as the breadbasket of Westeros. Its primary exports are grain and wine, and the region also grows melons, fire plums, peaches, apples and grapes. On a side note, my partner and I were talking about which of the great houses we would want to be a part of, and I picked the Martells, pretty much because of the region and food. Now, also on top of being rich with fertile land, the region is also the home to Old Town where the Citadel exists. The Citadel is the continent's centre for knowledge, the sciences, arts and industries, making the region rich in information, which is just as important. Finally, Dawn, the southernmost region of Westeros. Despite its dry, balmy land and sprawling deserts, Dawn primarily exports olives and wine. Sure, their wine is argued to be of lower quality than that produced further north, but folks in Essos seem to be fond of it. On top of this, Dawn also grows citrus, like lemons and pomegranates, plums, and a variety of spices that are all open for trade. So, considering Westeros as a whole, after I just sort of rattled off what each region does, there is no shortage of food and variety. Each region seems to have at least something available to it, whether it produces enough to export or not. It is a lot of information to take in at once, but it is important to understand what the Seven Kingdoms flourished in during the long summer, in order to talk about how they might manage their resources to survive the winter. The last winter in Westeros happened more than nine years before the beginning of the Game of Thrones series. It is likely that this only lasted a year or so, based on the fact that Robert's Rebellion took place about 14 years before the series beginning, and this was the end of winter. We know that there was a full seasonal cycle of summer, autumn, winter and spring in the five years between the Rebellion and the recently ended Long Summer that lasted nine years. We also know that the Long Night, as a closer comparison, legend has it lasted an entire generation, so it is safe to predict that the coming winter is going to be a long one. So let's now take a look at how the people of Westeros currently store food to make it last longer, and how effective this might be for long-term survival. Whether your economy is in a boom, so the summer months in this case, or decline, the coming winter, Food storage solutions are a really efficient way to manage resources to feed your population that drives the economy. Grain in Westeros, as far as we know, can be stored for up to three years if it is properly turned and aired out. So that is, depending on initial supplies and winter harvests, at least three years sorted. People would probably be hungry, but you could probably get enough calories to survive a day. Meat also can be cured, smoked and salted, as well as kept frozen for up to a year as well. We know that Castle Black already freezes meat inside the wall, as this is a natural freezer. And permafrost makes a great natural refrigeration, as we learned in reality, in the Middle Ages, to help manage storage of some fruits and vegetables. But of course, this will only get the people so far. The Seven Kingdoms should be able to get themselves by for a few years into the winter, but this is also highly sensitive to the war against the Night King and possibly between themselves. There is a real risk that the food supply could run out quicker than I am predicting here, leaving the Westerosi people to be dependent on imports from Essos, who are much less affected by the winter. But in saying that, they will still be hit and struggle to be able to feed their own. 
but let's assume that they are able to continue trading with Westeros for now. So as food supplies do diminish, how would this play out from an economic perspective? Well, prices would of course rise, there is no doubt about it, as we know that a fall in supply results in an increase in price. Who wins in this scenario while food is still around? Of course, the regions with a lot of money, we would expect. Let's look at the Westerlands. What I want to say here is that while they don't grow a lot of food, they have a lot of money and they have access to many other regions. We can anticipate that during a winter, they would have resources available to them that would help absorb increased food prices, like their abundance in gold and silver. Also, given that they build ships and there is a major war on the horizon, well, this is another great revenue source for the region. Now, there is a large but to consider here. Even if they have the money to import food or buy out what is left in other kingdoms, the winter season makes the seas between Essos and Westeros become so dangerous, almost impossible to charter, that the world would need an advancement in technology to make longer trade routes. Would this be a worthy investment for the Seven Kingdoms to make? Yes, I think it would, if it meant securing the food supply. But there are also other high stakes at play here that I would be surprised to see this made. As nights grow longer and winter gets colder, perhaps the Citadel will become key to unlocking information about how to grow and store food in this new season. The Citadel maybe has knowledge on how to make glass gardens more effective, how to keep animals alive, how to get the most out of frost-resistant crops like potatoes, onions and barley. They will all still grow in high garden and dawn, but will need to feed many more mouths as a proportion of a person's diet. Or perhaps they know nothing more than anyone else. For certain, hunting will still be an option during the winter, but less so, as there will be fewer animals around, and the conditions to actually go out and hunt will be more severe. Similarly, ice fishing will be another option, but again, it's limited. So, the Seven Kingdoms are heading into an economic downturn. Most industry is agrarian and will fall, and with a fall in this, there will be a fall in employment and income, and more importantly, food. Supplies will be limited and prices will rise, and it will be interesting to see how this plays out in the show and one day the books, if they're ever finished. I expect that trade with Essos will also be limited during this time due to the danger and risk of traveling the seas, and if I were in charge, I would be making investments into advancing technology to make glass gardens more efficient, storage capacity longer, making animals grow faster and fatter, much like we do in modern day agriculture. On top of this, I see food security as one of the key challenges that Westeros will face in the coming years, war or not. We know that in our world, many wars have ended, not so much by the defeat of an enemy, but because the enemy's people died of famine or stopped fighting because they could not be fed because of broken trade routes. This risk is as real to the fantasy world as it is to ours. Now, one thing I haven't covered yet, as it didn't really come up in my research, but could be critical, is magic, of course. Sure, the economy itself is heading into a downturn and recession, but if you go back and listen to episode 23 of this podcast, you will learn that the magic cycle is in an upturn and nearing its peak. We don't know what impact this will have on food, if any. According to Martin, magic influences the seasons, so I don't think we can rule out that maybe it can influence the land. This era is even more unknown to the people than winter itself, and there is no way of knowing what might take place. So that brings me to the end of this episode. From what I can tell, food security is as great a threat to the survival of humanity as is the Night King. But in saying that, the people of Westeros and also Essos have survived long winters in the past. 
It will absolutely be a struggle though as trade routes disappear and food becomes significantly harder to grow. I think it will be interesting to see how money holds value over this time. Will the rich houses continue to prosper even when they can't grow their own food? Or will those with agriculture become stronger? In reality, money would win without a doubt and the rich would just buy the food of the poor, much like today. Either way, feeding people and feeding armies is going to be a struggle. And it really doesn't seem like many people in the kingdoms, other than Jon Snow, are thinking about it. So thank you so much for listening, and it's nice to be back to my regular schedule where I can put out a new episode every week again. And I believe next weekend is the first episode of season eight. Very exciting. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter at Every Economics or find me at Talia Murdoch. If you want to support the show and the Cave Goblin Network at large, you can leave a review on iTunes or Podchaser, which is free and very helpful to us. Thank you again for listening. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch and this has been Everything Economics. Hey, my name is Eric. I'm Piers. And this is Podcast vs. Podcast. You're listening to us here on the Cave Goblin Network. We take turns pitching podcasts to each other. We're trying to find a good podcast to do because we don't have any ideas. So turn off whatever show you're listening to. Turn on our show. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.